Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons, or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's sermon. Good morning, church. I need you to open your Bibles to two passages. We're going to start in Luke 1, then we're going to go to Matthew 1. So it'll be in the Gospel of Luke and the Gospel of Matthew, first chapters for each of those. If you're visiting Christ Church, we're glad you joined us. Uh, Merry Christmas to you and your family. And if you're just visiting in the area uh, for today, we're glad you worship with us. If you're from the area and you're looking for a church home, we'd love to have a conversation with you about becoming a part of what we're trying to do here in the four states area. Uh, My name is Mark. I have the privilege of being one of the ministers. And uh, we are just uh, blessed that you're here. You encourage us and we're grateful for that. Uh, I'd like to read the excerpts from a married couple's diary. Uh, This was written after a summer day's set of activities. I begin with the wife's diary. Tonight I thought my husband was acting strange. We'd made plans to meet at a nice restaurant for dinner. I was shopping with my friends all day long, so I thought he was upset that I was late. But he made no comment on it. Conversation wasn't flowing, so I suggested that we go somewhere where we could talk. He agreed, but he didn't say much. I asked him what was wrong. He said nothing. I asked him if it was my fault that he was upset, and he said he wasn't upset, that it has nothing to do with me and not to worry about it. On the way home, I told him I loved him. He smiled, just kept driving. I can't explain his behavior. When we got home, I felt as if I'd lost him completely, as if he wanted nothing to do with me anymore. We just sat there quietly and watched TV. He continued to seem distant and absent. Finally, with silence all around, I decided to go to bed. About 15 minutes later, he came up, but I still felt like he was distracted and his thoughts were somewhere else. He fell asleep. I cried. Here's the husband's diary of that same day. A two-foot putt. How could I have missed a two-foot putt? (laughs) See, ladies, sometimes we're thinking nothing. See, most every memory over time gets cleaned up. Good memories get made better. Bad memories get washed away of the filth and the grit. We remember things differently. It's necessary. We romanticize things. Uh, We raise it up to a level that it could never sustain. We just want it to be perfect as if in our lack of perfection, we could find perfection. We're nostalgic, which means we remember things as they weren't and wish they had been. And I don't want to just rain or be, you know, a buzzkill today about Christmas, and I'm not going to do that, but... What we really need to do is if we really want to get Christmas right, if we want to understand in our own souls what took place in the incarnation, we're going to have to abandon the romanticized, nostalgic look at Christmas. There's nothing wrong with gift giving. There's nothing wrong with any of those things. And I certainly wouldn't belittle those. But if that's all you get out of Christmas, it's a romanticized, nostalgic look at something that wasn't that romantic and doesn't deserve that type of nostalgia. As Scott McKnight, the author, says, we, in America, Christmas is one part the story of the incarnation, one part Father Christmas from Germany and gift-giving, and one part Charles Dickens' Christmas carol giving to the poor. All celebrated with our families, which is good, reunited around good food, which is great, and creating memories that we hope last and are good memories. But we all know, don't we? Some people don't have good Christmases because their family's just not what it's supposed to be. Their family's not at a good stage. Or there's been sin and darkness in the home that has made something that could be so beautiful something just so dark. 
See, if we peer into the first century's actual world, if we allow it to be what it is, the simplest way for me to explain it, if we took our nativity scenes, and by now, the 17th, most of you have them out. If you haven't, you're a dude. But if, if, you, if you haven't done it, you get a chance. If you have done it, I want you to consider something. Next year, when you put your nativity scene out, don't dust it. Let the dust stay on it. And it might remind you of the reality of the early Christmas. It wasn't pristine. It wasn't this little angelic-looking Mary in light blue and white, looking at this little chubby, perfect child in a manger with stoic, strong Joseph standing beside her. Let the dust stay on it. And allow Christmas to be the dusty thing it actually was on the first Christmas. You see, in Advent, and we'll celebrate, and you're invited to come back tonight at at 5 o'clock for our Advent ceremonies. Uh, It's just a wonderful time of pausing and breathing in deeply and enjoying. Advent celebrates what is coming, and we celebrate what came, but we also celebrate what's coming when that Jesus comes back and establishes everything he said. In week one, we talked about hope. Last week, we talked about peace. Tonight, we're going to talk about joy and how we find joy in even the grittiness of Christmas. Like all stories recorded in the Bible, Christmas enters into Israel's story. The reason the Old Testament is so very important to all of us is it's the promise that God made to Adam and Eve in the garden, Genesis 3, and the promise he fulfilled to Abraham in Genesis 12, and everything else is Israel's story. Not just the ethnic nation of Israel, but the people that would become Israel, the followers and lovers of God. And Christmas, the incarnation, enters into that story. And it enters into it powerfully. It seizes that narrative and it joins it. But if we're going to understand the grittiness, the dustiness and the nativity, we also have to remember Israel's story, but Roman's occupation. Rome was a taskmaster. Rome was brutal and oppressed the Jewish people. And into that climate, Jesus came. Into that dusty, dirty, raw, and real, non-nostalgic, non-romanticized or sentimentalized seen. God sent Jesus into a broken world to serve broken people who had shattered dreams. And that's the truth of the dusty nativity. And the incarnation enters into our story through three poor people. Poor. Not rich, not famous, not beautiful. Poor. And let's remove all of that and just look at it as it's recorded in Scripture. And we're going to read two passages, Luke 1 and Matthew 1. And we're going to read those passages, and you're so familiar with them, it could ruin it. So just pretend you've never heard it before and let the word saturate. Let's talk about the first poor person. Let's talk about poor Mary. Poor Mary gave up her dignity. You see, I've entitled today's message an awful lot to ask for Christmas. God's asking a lot for Christmas. And when I look at it, I don't know, just about two or three years ago, it, it stunned me. I, sometimes I can watch a commercial and I, my mind's disengaged from it and I, I see it happening and I see what's going on, but I couldn't tell you what the product was or what they're doing. But there has been a commercial over the last two or three years at Christmas time that drives me crazy. Is anybody really giving Lexuses for Christmas? Is that a real thing? Because I could say to my wife, what do you want for Christmas? I would like a $75,000 Lexus. And she'd <laughs> try again. I'm sure you would. That's just, it doesn't fit into our budget. It doesn't fit into our world. And yet they're proposing out there that people do this all the time. When you think of what God asked for Christmas from three poor people, you're going to think, wow, that costs more than a Lexus. Let's look at Mary. Mary gave up her dignity. Luke chapter 1, verse 26. 
In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and he said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who is said to be barren is in her sixth month, for nothing is impossible with God. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me as you have said. And then the angel left her. What do we know about this girl? We know she's a girl. She's probably the age of 13 through 17. The reason we can speculate she's in that pocket of age is she would have been post-puberty, to have been called a virgin. Now, the word virgin in the original Hebrew language that's talked about in the Old Testament prophecies has two possible meanings, even parallel meanings. The first meaning, the standard meaning, and some people debate whether this is what was being said about Mary, is they were saying she's just a young girl. That's all virgin means. It has nothing to do with this conception virgin born. But I'm going to press back on that because if you look in your scripture, when The angel says, God is going to impregnate you. She says, how? I'm a virgin. She's using the secondary meaning, which means has never been sexually active. So whether you want to believe it's one word or the other, Mary qualifies it as both. She's both young and she's a virgin. And she asks this question. This young girl is engaged to a fine man. And I'll explain why Joseph is a good man. He's not just a kind man. He's a good, righteous man. And their families would have agreed that Joseph and Mary should marry. Joseph was probably much older than her, could possibly be in his mid-20s, early 30s. And the families would agree, and they would become, depending on the translation of Scripture, betrothed or engaged. Now, that means something different in their culture than in ours. To be engaged was a legal ceremony. The families had agreed, the couple had agreed, and they are legally married but have not consummated it and do not live together. That's what this meant. That will factor into the story here in just a moment. An angel comes and says, you are going to become pregnant. And Mary says, how can I become pregnant if I've never had sexual intercourse with my fiance? And the angel says, God is going, and I know this is awkward and people are going to squirm for a few minutes. Hang with me. God is going to impregnate Mary. That's what the angel says. So that this will truly be the son of God. Now, not in some corrupt Greek mythological way that a God would impregnate a woman like actually having physical relations. He's saying, no, the Holy Spirit is going to come and overshadow you, means supernaturally and divinely make you pregnant. And Mary has to consider this. Being pregnant out of wedlock, that's an awful lot to ask for Christmas because she would have to pay a price for this. This is a girl who understands what God is offering her, but she doesn't fully understand yet what it's going to cost her. In fact, we notice several times when we read through the Gospels that there are certain moments that Mary isn't understanding why Jesus is doing what he's doing. She's willing for God to involve her in the story, but she doesn't understand every detail, and yet she's still willing. A virginal conception? Who's going to believe in that? Well, 
Today, people still don't. In one of the most astounding moments of Christmas, this 13 to 17-year-old high school, junior high to high school age girl is asked by God to carry his child and it's going to cost her more than we ever think about it. If you just see this moment and think of there's Mary in her light blue and her white looking up to heaven all simply and beautifully, you're going to miss it. What he's asking her to do is real. She's going to really carry a child. This isn't one moment she says she will and then 12 minutes later she has this baby without contractions. Not at all. Her body was altered over nine months while she gave birth to this child. She nursed this child. She wiped the hind end of God. It's okay, you can smile. She potty trained him. She taught him to speak. She fed him. She chose his diet. She chose his schooling. She nurtured him. This was real childbirth, real child rearing, and real ridicule. Mary would be known, and we think this is endearing, Mary would be known as the mother of Jesus. But what's not being said is they never mentioned who the father of Jesus was, which meant every time they talked about Mary's son, it was wink, wink, you know, that girl, the one who had the baby without a husband. You remember her story? How proud she has to be of that. If you're a teenager who's poor, and she was, and I'll explain that in a moment. If you're a teenager who's poor, and you're living in poverty, and you're suffering under the oppression of the Roman Empire, And God comes to you and he says, I'm going to give you something for Christmas. And you're like, sweet, the end of Rome, cash, and my husband and I to get on with our lives. And God says, no, 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 I'm going to make you poorer. And you're going to be oppressed by your own people. And I'm going to ask you to go deeper into a loss of dignity than I'll ask anybody else to do what I need to do. And Mary, this incredible 13 to 17-year-old girl, says, may it be done to me as you have said. It's a lot to ask for for Christmas. And Mary says, okay. Even though I don't understand all of this, uh, okay, let's do it. That's asking a lot. You see, for Mary, Christmas meant the day she lost her dignity. Christmas would mean the day she would be condemned for being obedient. For Mary, Christmas was the day that her entire relationship with her community was trashed. And so would she be. It's a lot to ask. Let's look at the second poor person. Let's look at poor Joseph. He gave up his place. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verse 18 and following. You see, Matthew has opened his gospel by showing us the lineage that but both Joseph and Mary were from the prophecies. Not that they, in particular, but they came from the lineage that Jesus would come from. Both Luke and Matthew established that differently, but they established the same principle. And following that, verse 18 of Matthew 1, this is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. Now, we think a righteous man, and we think he was a good man. No, no, let me, inter- let me explain what this means. Matthew is saying that in his community, there was a special Hebrew term. I can't pronounce it, and you couldn't write it down if I tried to pronounce it, so let me tell you what it meant. That he was an upstanding, Torah-observant Jew. He did the right things for the right reason in honor of the law. He would have been considered a man of dignity and a man you would turn to if you had questions about how do I observe the law. 
He would have been what we consider in, in our day and age like an elder of the church, a, a church father, someone in the community that you would go to to seek counsel and advice about how to pursue God well. He was observant. He was strict and rigorous. He knew the interpretations. He knew how to implement them. And you and I would have admired Joseph, and we still should. In the same way that we admire Mary. Not because Mary was perfect, but because Mary was willing. And when we turn Mary into an equal to God, be careful. She should be honored for another issue. And that is that she was willing to give up her personal reputation and dignity to obey God. And Joseph gave up his place. Word comes to him that his fiancée, he doesn't live with her, he's never slept with her, They've had an agreement to be married and they're making plans. She's pregnant. And being a Torah observant man, he immediately knew what the law said. The law said there were only two options for this since he wasn't one of them. The first option was that Mary had been seduced and now was an adulteress and he would have to divorce her and she could suffer. Not that she always would, but that a woman in this circumstance could suffer capital punishment. Or she'd been raped. And if she was raped and impregnated against her will, it was probably a Roman soldier. That happened a lot. In fact, the critics of the resurrection and the critics of Jesus' virgin birth often went to this and said she probably got pregnant by a Roman soldier, but there's no evidence of that at all. In fact, we know from the scriptures that's not true. Joseph had two choices, but they were the same choice. Whether she was an adulteress or she was raped, he needed to sever the agreement that they had to become married. Or otherwise, he would be drawn into this complicity And he would be shamed. He had a hard decision, but he made a hard, kind decision. And he decided that he would divorce her, but he would not do it publicly. He would not add more shame to her. He would simply take her aside. Now remember, at this point in time, he doesn't know how this happened. And he has all of this. Can you imagine the anger, the embarrassment, the humiliation, the pain he's going through? But instead of striking out and getting even with her, he simply loves her. And he says, I'll... I'll end the relationship because she's pregnant by another man, but I won't, I won't humiliate her. He decides not to shame her in public, which would probably lead some people to believe he probably had something to do with it. You see, what I want to tell you this morning about Joseph and about Mary is simply this. God doesn't ask anything from us for Christmas he's not already given us. He only asked for Mary for faith. And she knew who God was because he'd given her reason to have faith. He'd given her faith and she returned her faith to him. And he only asks of Joseph that Joseph trust him. Look at verse 20. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. We need to let that linger for a second because I don't think any man in this room would go, oh yeah, of course. We gotta go, what? It's never happened before and you want me to believe it happened now? She will give birth to a son and you're to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son and he gave him the name Jesus. Have you noticed when you read the Gospels, that it's never recorded that Joseph ever said a word. Ladies, sometimes that makes it holy. If your husband doesn't talk, he may be pondering the depths of God or or not. Joseph never says a word. 
It just shows his behavior. In fact, Joseph is here in these nativity scenes, in the dusty nativity scenes, and then he's there when Jesus is 12, and then he's never mentioned again in Scripture. I don't know what that means, but I still like him. God asked a lot of Joseph, didn't he? Take this girl who's carrying a child that's not yours and believe it happened by me. That's asking for more than Alexis, isn't it? It's asking for a ton. The angel came to Joseph knowing he was poor but rich in character. And he said, I know your reputation is going to be ruined. And I know this status that you've worked your whole life of being a noble man, a righteous man, a law-observant man is going to be diminished. And I know that this is what God asked for you to accomplish something greater than yourself. And it's going to bless more people. And Joseph amazingly, graciously, and compassionately resumes his relationship with Mary. He chooses her a second time, and he chooses this child to become his that is not his. He surrenders his hard-earned place, knowing that his friends, who he runs around with, his golf buddies, his work partners, the people that he spends time with in the community, the people that used to look up at him are going to look down on him because he's no longer what he once was. He's hard to be believed. And what does Joseph say? Okay. He wakes up from a dream, says, Mary, let's get married. For Joseph, Christmas meant the day he began to suffer in order to raise Jesus. Christmas was the day that his entire relationship with his community was completely altered so that others might be saved and he himself would not be saved from what God asked him to do. It's very important to understand that the dusty nativity is the real one. The social condition of the first Christmas was that a woman was asked to give up her dignity and a man was asked to give up his place. And if you know anything about men and women, you know those are big things to ask of anybody because it touches the heart of each one of us. It touches the heart of a woman to be in relationships where she's loved, trusted, and empowered. And it touches a man and part of him where he makes his way in the world by what he accomplishes and how hard he works to have it. Well, those are the two poor people. Let's talk about the third poor person. Poor Jesus. He gave up a chance at a normal life. When I discovered this, it made me really happy. It made me excited for December 17th to arrive because I want to share it with you. I'd like to begin by reading Philippians chapter 2 where the early church, remembering the grittiness and dustiness of the nativity, actually told us what it meant to them. Philippians chapter 2. Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. God asked Jesus for more than Alexis at Christmas. And to give it, he had to give up all he had. But he made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant, he, became, he was being made in human likeness. And being a found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. God said to Merrick, would you give up your dignity? Be it done to me as you've said. Joseph, would you give up your place in society to raise a child who will be the reason you're mocked? Joseph shook his head. Jesus, would you leave the best parts of heaven to go to the worst parts of earth and suffer the worst humanity will ever give to any other human being? And Jesus said, thy will be done. You see, if you in the first century, and I learned this and it, it frightened me, and I have to be careful in terminology I want to use because there's children in the room and uh, you know, you, you'll understand where I'm going with this. 
If you in the first century were born an illegitimate marriage or born outside of what was considered normal by the standards of society, then you would, as Jesus would have been perceived, he would have been an an illegitimate son. And I didn't know this until I did my research. The word for that was mamzer, M-A-M-Z-E-R. We have a grosser term for someone raised in that condition. It's unfortunate. But what I learned about this was the social status of Jesus, which was given to him by his heavenly father, his social status was to be illegitimate his entire life. And one of the complications that amazed me was that an illegitimate boy could not marry a legitimate girl. He could only marry another illegitimate person. So God asked Jesus to come to earth and not only take on the sins of the world and all that would come with the crucifixion, but his entire lifetime, he would be known as that guy. In fact, it's interesting, in Mark chapter 6, he's called the son of Mary. No one's referred to as the son of a woman. It's always the son of John or the son of this or the son of that, the son of Abraham, the son of Isaac, the son of Jacob. No, he's known as the son of Mary. Now you know what that meant. In John chapter 8, Jesus is, is arguing and he's defeating the social arguments of the, of the religious leaders. And he burns them. He gets them in a corner and he pins them. And they come back in Mark 8 and they said, we're not illegitimate. What does that mean? You know exactly what that means. How dare you, illegitimate child, call us illegitimate. We know who our father is. You see, Jesus couldn't have a normal life. He couldn't fall in love and marry a girl from a good family because he wasn't one. He was always going to be this. And he would always have to marry. And when I was reading that, I was like, oh, that's so sick and so twisted. Then I stopped and I went, and so phenomenally beautiful. He became illegitimate so he could marry me. Because he's legitimately not illegitimate. And I am legitimately illegitimate. I mean, I know my dad. I look like my dad, I act like my dad. My mom will tell you I'm 100% my father's son. But spiritually, I walked away from my father's home. I'm the prodigal who walked away and told his father, I wish you were dead, leave me alone, stay out of my life. And I walked away into this illegitimate life and Jesus came back and he gave up a chance to live the life he should have had so I could live the life I never deserved. And if I'm offensive right now, I'm going to go for it. And you're all illegitimate too. And isn't the beauty of the dusty nativity that we get written into the story for the price he paid? Now, I know when I look around this room, there are some that were born in the same condition that Jesus was asked to be born in. I want you to understand, you are loved, you are valued, and choices others made brought you to life, and we're grateful for you, truly. And others of us were born in situations that were more socially acceptable and we have no relationship with our folks. So you get the point, don't you? What God asked of Jesus was to come and give up the perfect life so that people like you and me could have hope. Hebrews 2, 9. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. There is no human being in this room who's an accident. You are made in the image of God and valued for that. And Jesus came to show you how valued you were by devaluing his life to value yours. You see, God doesn't ask anything from us for Christmas that he's already not given us. 
You see, the first Christmas is this extraordinarily strange and horrifying surrendered life and abandoned dreams. This understanding of Christmas steals it from the pages of Dickens and puts it back in the pages of real life where our diaries are written about how we blew it and how one who never blew it came back to show us that by his mercy and by his love and by his willing to put on flesh, he provided a means for us to escape our flesh. God has identified with us in the depth of our sin, in the depths of our social dislocations, in the, in the depth of all the false accusations made against us for being followers of his. Jesus said, I've come back to redeem that. He has redeemed us from all of it. The incarnation is an illustration that God became like us and with us becoming one, he can take any condition we're in and restore it. He became who we are so we might become what he is. Mary, would you sacrifice your dignity and your social reputation to serve the king? Be it done to me as you say. Joseph, Would you marry a woman who's carrying a child that's not your own and would you raise, protect her, provide for her and raise that son as if he were your own? Joseph shook his head, yes. Jesus, would you give up the best parts of heaven to come to the worst parts of earth to provide all of these illegitimate children who have wandered away from their father God, would you bring them back into the family by trading your goodness for their brokenness? And Jesus said, thy will be done. And you might think, well, that's interesting that that dusty nativity, but in your dusty nativity, where are you? Because you belong in it. The incarnation didn't happen 2,000 years ago, so we'd have warm fuzzies on a Sunday morning in December. It happened so you and I would understand that God is asking something from us at Christmas. And it may be a lot to ask, but look what happens when we respond Thy will be done. Because you are surrounded by illegitimate children who don't know that there's one who came to marry us into the Father's family. The church is the bride of Christ, isn't it? And the bride is Jesus, or the the bride is each one of us, and the groom is Jesus, and he has come to invite us into the family to be adopted as sons and daughters of the King. And there is no one you will meet this day and no one you will meet this week and no one you will meet the rest of your life that Jesus did not come in the incarnation for. Offer an illegitimate world a legitimate king. And then we'll have understood what Christmas is. Let's stand together. Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.